Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Thanks to Think. From digital signage to audiovisual solutions, we've thought of everything. Visit thinkpm.ie. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up this week, we have a full rundown of all the gaming news from E3. Plus, have you ever wondered what do cyber criminals want with your data? Security and defence analyst Declan Power and Cisco's Martin Lee will join me to discuss. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. Um, The world's biggest gaming event, E3, took place over the last number of days and we got some pretty exciting insight into the gaming titles that are coming over the next few months and right up to next year as well. Uh, John Riley is the editor of TheEffect.net. He watched all the action for us and he joins me now. Uh, John, it's always an exciting event. Did it live up to the hype this year? Yeah, given the con- you know, given the scenarios that you know people can- we can't have in person events yet, and last year's E three was actually cancelled at last minute because the US weren't really sure what the- what was going to kind of take place with lockdown and stuff because this usually happens in LA every June every year, and as he said, it's one of the biggest gaming one of the biggest gaming events in any calendar. So you know to be able to pull it off like they did um, with some of the biggest hitters in the gaming industry kind of showing their wares, it, you know, I I was I was happy with the with the with the with the number of days and the number of press conferences held throughout. Yeah, it was good. Okay, so let's talk through some of the titles that we are excited about. Um, where do you want to start? Yeah, so I guess we might do it chronologically. We had we, you know with Ubisoft kind of somewhat in inverted commas kicking off the event with you know being one of the major biggest major publishers uh, last Saturday. Um, I think it was like about 8pm Irish time. They kind of showed off some of their upcoming titles. So, you know, your listeners might be aware of the Assassin's Creed franchise or even the Far Cry franchise, you know, the, one of their, some of their biggest hitters, along with a few others. But yeah, they, they probably were the ones that sh- showcased some of their biggest wares right at the start of the event. You mentioned there um, Far Cry as, as an example. Um, is that going to be available on all the consoles? And did we get much of a teaser? Yeah, so it's going to be available on the new gen consoles or the current gen, as people are starting to call them now, and the previous gen. So people with the PS4 or the Xbox One can expect to play the latest installment, Far Cry 6, coming out this October. It was originally meant to be coming out in February, but again, with lockdown and kind of working from home scenarios for the for the developers, they felt it was best to push it out um, about six months or so to give themselves some you know time to polish. But this one looks looks really kind of uh, edgy you know, you're, you're fighting against a revolution uh, um, against this dictator called Anton Castillo and if anyone uh, listening is big fans of Breaking Bad uh, he's played by uh, Giancarlo Esposito so he's Gus Spring from the Breaking Bad oh. franchise one of yeah, so it's a big, big name they've got for, for the villain in this title. And you're kind of fighting in this uh, fictional uh, Caribbean islands kind of setup called Yara. Um, so, yeah, again, imagine all out action. You're, you're taking over villages and towns. You're using your backpack to take down enemies with rockets. And it just it looks a bit bananas to the point where you can have like crocodiles attack enemies on your at your back at your back and call. Um, so, you know, if your listeners are, are kind of intrigued, they should definitely check it out. We have a summary post actually up on the effect.net of what Ubisoft announced, including Far Cry 6. So yeah, this is one I'm really excited for because I'm a big fan of the series. So yeah, it looks mad. 
Another one from Ubisoft sees them pair up with Nintendo. So we have uh, the Mario and Rabbit Sparks of Hope, which is coming out in 2022. Uh, what do we know about this one? Yeah, so it's a sequel to the 2017 kind of original title, um, Mario and Rabbids. I can't remember, the Battle for Freedom or something. But it's a, kind of, it's a big deal that you got the likes of Nintendo kind of using their IP, their Mario kind of characters to team up with Ubisoft kind of famous rabbits, which are kind of for your listeners that don't know, they're kind of like the minions from Despicable Me, these kind of quirky, a bit daft, kind of white bunny-like creatures. So they're teaming up with Mario. It's for a real-time strategy game. So basically you take turns against the enemies to take them down. So you, you'll plan your, your attack and how you're going to kind of battle against these bows. And yeah, as I said, it's going to be exclusive to Nintendo Switch. Coming out next year, it looks very colourful, very fun. And it's um, it's going to be impressive, an impressive show title for the, for the console and another kind of system seller, really, because the first one was such a huge success back in 2017. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, let's turn our attention now to the Xbox section of the event. There's a hell of a lot on the way. Uh, let's kick things off by talking through Halo. Yeah, uh, so Sunday then just gone, you know, Xbox kind of teamed up with their new acquisition, Bethesda, one of the biggest game developers in the world. They recently acquired them for about seven and a half billion dollars. So this is really to help Xbox pad out their first party um, offerings. So with Halo, then, you know, it's a franchise, it's a, you know, it's a, um, a, a staple on the Xbox console. And we're coming up to the 20th anniversary of Halo. So coming this Christmas, Halo Infinite is launching. Um, originally meant to launch last Christmas with the, with the new Xbox consoles. But unfortunately, because of d- delays and everything else happening, it was delayed itself. Uh, so, yeah, this Christmas, we're finally getting um, our hands on the new title, which will both have a campaign mode, so a single player mode, and then the much sought after multiplayer section, which really is kind of the, the crown jewel in the Halo franchise so you know people are very excited from the footage that was shown off at at the event i find it so hard to believe that that franchise is 20 years old it must be bonkers to look back at the first iteration of the game and compare it to the 2021 version yeah, no, it's, it's people are already doing comparison videos, but they seem to be staying really true to the franchise. And I know that's kind of, you, you want to entice new players, but also keep the old fans happy, but they really seem to be striking quite a nice uh, middle ground. I know they got a lot of flack, I think last year or the year before, where they showed some gameplay footage that gamers just weren't happy to the point that it's, you know, that could have even impacted the, the delay now to this Christmas, that they had to go back to the drawing board and go, wait, fans really didn't like what we showcased in that video. We need to kind of up our game, no pun intended, and get you know get it on track with what the fans are expecting and to make it accessible to newbies. So yeah, there's a, a lot of hype for this. I still no set launch date, but it's, it's down as holidays 2021 in inverted commas. But yeah, it has to launch this Christmas or there'll be absolute war. Right, so one that is a good while away yet is Starfield. That's down for November of next year. Yeah, so they, they kind of, you know, this one has was has been teased as of last year. As I mentioned earlier, Bethesda, one of the biggest game developers in the world, their people would know them if your, your listeners, gamers would know the Oblivion uh, or Elder Scrolls franchise. And then they also look after the Fallout franchise, two huge role-playing games. So now this one called Starfield, which they said is launching next November 2022, is kind of basically those titles in space, as the name gives away. So, you know, this is our first kind of major um, new uh, title in 25 years in terms of not being a Fallout title, not being an Elder Scrolls title. So there's a, a significant amount of hype. And as I said, the fact that Microsoft bought the entire company means they can have this new title exclusively to themselves uh, when it launches next year. So PlayStation gamers are left in the cold, unfortunately. And it's really, this is how the battle is heating up between the manufacturers, that they have to have these exclusives to get 
to get the people to pick up their consoles, basically. So it looks, from the teaser we saw, it looks very impressive, but we're way off yet, so there's only, there's a lot to learn yet. One that's coming a little bit sooner than November of next year is my beloved Forza Horizon 5, and we should hopefully have that in time for Christmas this year. Yes, this is one of the biggest events, or one of the biggest announcements of not only the Xbox event, but the whole E3 in general. You know, I think the E3 themselves did a kind of an awards ceremony and it crowned it as the most anticipated game of the whole event. So that's how big of a, a franchise, how big of a, a buzz it's gotten because we hadn't really heard anything about it until last Sunday. And now to hear that it's coming in November, that's a fantastic kind of turn up for the books that people can go, look at, we're only about four or five months out and we're getting a brand new fourth title. And yeah, as you said, you're a huge fan, as am I. I was at the launch of the the, the last title in, in England, where it was based in England and across the kind of the British Isles. And now this one is taking us all the way to Mexico and it's going to be using the power of the new consoles. But it will still be available on, on previous gen, on the uh, on the, the older gen consoles too. But from the videos I've, I've seen, and again, we've done a summary post on theeffect.net where you can go on and have a look yourself. They look just stunning. Like they've done some amazing kind of capturing of the sky of Mexico, the buildings, the, the, the environments. And, you know, as you said, there's going to be a day night cycle. It's, you know, you're a big fan. I'm a big fan. It's going to look spectacular on the new consoles. Yeah, I'm excited this is coming in November because I think when the new consoles came out uh, just in time for Christmas last year, we didn't get a whole load of new titles with it and I think the Forza uh the new Forza game will look sensational and if you have the new Forza game the new console and a lovely 4k tv you really will get the full impact won't you oh absolutely and they kind of they 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 spoke to that in the video saying you know we're really using the power of these new consoles we're going to have um ray tracing which is a kind of a tech a bit of a, a, a geeky term but it just it's something that the previous consoles couldn't do and it means that the reflections on the cars will, will be even more realistic when you're looking at them up close in a specific kind of section of the game so yeah everything's going to be turned up to 11 they're really going to be pushing these consoles hard and it's going to be as you said a showpiece title and it's a shame it's a year late but we got you know i think they've been obviously working on this for a long long time and it's finally coming this november so better late than never yeah, I cannot wait. Uh, another section of gaming that I am obsessed with is, of course, the Nintendo Switch. The last time we spoke, John, there was a lot of rumours flying around that, you know, we might get a new uh, Switch Pro console. Any glimmer of hope on that front? No, absolutely nothing, unfortunately. Wow. As, you know, there's, there's been a lot of rumours knocking about, as you said, even from the big reputable outlets like Forbes and Bloomberg. You know, the big hitters have some good insider info and they say it is coming, but Nintendo haven't, have been incredibly tight-lipped. Um, so the rumour was it could potentially be this year to launch with the new Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild 2. But uh, having watched the event, they did their, what they call Nintendo Direct on Sunday uh, to kind of round out the event or sorry even not sunday just earlier on in this week and no there was no mention of the new console whatsoever oh, so disappointing. Still, anticipation is still there but they did show off some kind of impressive looking titles coming to the current switch so nothing to kind of turn your nose up to and uh, you know as i mentioned the new legend of zelda we got a nice little feature video of the kind of the sequel coming to the launch you know back in 2017 when the launch when they launched the the first breath of the wild one of mm -hmm. the most popular titles um, of all time really on the switch and um, we're going to get a sequel next year um so that's you know that people were losing our mind over that i think it was the most streams of the of all the e3 events um out of you know ubisoft and xbox so there's a huge appetite there there's about 85 to 90 million nintendo switches sold so you know there's a really captive audience there for any, all these exclusive titles 
Okay, so The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, as you mentioned there, is a title for next year. But we do have some titles coming out this October. Uh, the first of which is Super Monkey Ball Banana Mania, which is out on October 5th. Yeah, so uh, another 20th anniversary kind of acknowledgement here. You know, this is this this is one of those original Nintendo kind of uh, secret hits or kind of fan favorites with the Super Monkey Ball, where you're basically a monkey in a ball rolling around these environments like you would in a kind of an old... Uh, arcade machine where you kind of you're tilting the ground to, to to navigate the ball around and it was simple but effective and people just fell in love with it so now we're 20 years on the super monkey ball banana mania it's coming out on october 5th as you said and it's going to be for the fan favorites and then for people that have never played it before in their life for the young kind of younger audience that have switches it could be something that they pick up and kind of have a really good time with so that got quite a bit of mention at, at, at nintendo's event and then rounding out october this year we're going to have a new mario party so it's called mario party superstars so this is kind of like an amalgamation or it's going to have like a um a kind of mashup of some of the favorite uh, mario party uh, mini games from from throughout the years so you're going to have a hundred in total and there'll be online play which shouldn't be a big deal in 2021 but nintendo have always been on the back foot when it comes to their online play capabilities on the switch so thankfully all of the titles on this particular game will be online play enabled so you'll be able to play against your friends around the world and it looks like fun like anything mario it's going to be good fun yeah, they are great games. You know, the thing that struck me recently is that they're great cross-generational games. Uh, Mario is obviously such an iconic brand. There's such mass appeal. But I know a lot of my friends now who are introducing their kids to some of the Mario games. And it's just nice. There's no murder. There's no gruesomeness. Um, it's just lovely. And I do think that the, the Mario games are fantastic. So I'm more than excited about that one. Um, we also got a bit of insight from Xbox around their their approach to game streaming uh what did we learn on that front yeah so kind of in the lead up to e3 it wasn't officially at e3 but they kind of just released this unassuming blog post um officially on their on their official website um outlining their plans then for the future of their kind of game streaming or their game um access platform it's called xbox game pass so it's kind of like their version of netflix and as every day goes on it's becoming more like netflix as we know it in terms of the streamability or the access to it so they announced quite a lot of significant things. They're basically saying that in the future, you're going to have an, an Xbox game streaming app built into your smart TV. So all you'll need is a Bluetooth controller to, to actually access this 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 uh, platform or this subscription service to play games on the fly, depending on how fast your broadband is. They're also working on a streaming stick, kind of like a Chromecast, but it's going to be for an Xbox. So it's going to be this, you know the size, I'd imagine, and as as a Chrome of a Chrome stick that you can just plug into your TV if it isn't a smart TV, or you, you know you you just want to have it on a smaller TV in the house. You can then stream games to it. Uh, they're working on kind of, you know, they, they already have it in beta where you can stream uh, Xbox games on, on your browser, on your laptop or whatever it may be. That's going to become kind of more officially available because right now it's only kind of in testing. That's coming in the coming weeks. Um, yeah, they're doing a hell of a lot to get people on their platform. There's already about 23 million people subscribed to this service and its success is off the back of whenever they launch a first party title, be it Halo, be it Forza Horizon, that lands day one on this platform. So you don't have to pay anything extra to get these brand new titles, you know, these AAA titles. And it's really putting it to, to PlayStation to kind of work on what they're offering and where the value is for PlayStation gamers because there's, you know, there's nothing else in the gaming industry that gives you this much value in terms of titles. So it's, it's definitely Xbox have been playing the long game here and it's going to be very interesting to see how this develops in the coming uh, kind of months and years. Brilliant stuff as always. John Riley, editor of TheEffect.net. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jess. Coming up next, what do the cyber criminals want with your data? 
Tech Talk. Tech Talk. On News Talk. Thanks to Think. From digital signage to audiovisual solutions, we've thought of everything. Visit thinkpm.ie. TechTalk at Newstalk.com is the email address if you'd like to get in touch or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. We've heard an awful lot about cybersecurity in recent weeks, ever since the HSE ransomware attack. But if you found yourself wondering why a hacker would target you or your business, if you've wondered how real are these cyber threats or what can be done about it, listen up. On Thursday evening, I hosted a very interesting panel discussion with Thanks to Cisco. Um, we were talking through, I suppose, the themes and the terminology associated with cybersecurity and how it could, can and does impact you and your life. I was joined by security and defence analyst Declan Power and Martin Lee of Cisco and we started the discussion with Martin explaining what exactly we're talking about when we approach the subject of cybersecurity. Well, it's all a, a story of really of how much technology has become part of our lives. Um, everything that we do from a professional point of view, from our professional lives to our social lives, increasingly revolves around security. And um, sorry, increasingly revolves around technology and the bad guys that are out there and there are always bad guys have found ways of being able to subvert that technology that we use and use it to their own gains. So in terms of cybersecurity, what we think about is um, the confidentiality of our data, um, the availability of that technology in order just to do things, and um, the integrity of making sure that our data and our devices aren't, aren't tampered with. Um, from the bad guy's point of view, we see that uh, criminals increasingly have moved to adopt technology. Uh, if you wish to rob a bank these days, you don't put a stocking over your head and go down the high street. Um, you use a computer and you'd use it to um, access someone's online uh, bank account uh, and try and steal the money that, that way. So cybersecurity is all about how do we protect these systems and that are such an important part of our day and also the data which is increasingly part of our lives. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that this is something that it seems like we're just talking about it all of a sudden. But as I mentioned there, you've been talking about it for 20 years. Am I right in just saying that the, the nature and the sophistication of the attackers has increased, but also have the stakes for us, the average consumer? Because as you mentioned there, like everything we're doing is online now. If somebody gained access to my social media, to my cloud account, to my banking all of that could be done getting access to my phone or my computer. And that's my, essentially my entire life. So that's the dramatic difference that's happened over the last 20, 25 years. Yes. Um, as computer devices have increasingly become networked, uh, we're, we're exposing them to, to a world of risk. Um, you know, we, we, we all know about the, the bad guys that we're likely to encounter in our, in our normal lives. Um, it's very easy to forget that the phone that sits in your pocket is a, is, a, is a computer device. And if that's continuously connected to the to the Internet, then, yeah, there's all sorts of, of, of bad guys that might be looking for that or might be looking to subvert um, our activities for their own ends. I think one thing to remember, if we go back into the history of computing, 
And the very, very first computers that were built at Bletchley Park and did the incredible work in uh, deciphering the German communications during the war, these were the first computers and they were built to hack. So the whole history of electronic computing is that of, of security. And over the years, I think a key thing to, to remember is uh, bad guys don't get any dumber. They only learn from their previous successes and, and build on that. So we need to make sure, I mean, there's no need to panic, but we need to make sure that our security that we have in our lives is, is adequate and uh, uh, the correct level for the level of, prote of protection that we need. Declan, I might come to you here because that point is an excellent one and that the hackers, they're not getting any dumber. Technology, although it's a tool to enable us to you know, do more and be more efficient, it also can be used against other people for uh, nefarious means, I suppose. Do we still have a job to do when it comes to educating people about the security the security side, and there's more to cybersecurity than just doing a campaign telling everyone not to have their password as password one, two, three. Absolutely. Do we need to do more? Certainly, absolutely we do. And as I was listening to Martin, uh, putting things in context and giving a little bit of historical uh, background as well, I was reminded of somebody I worked with some years ago who was talking about a situation with regards to security uh, within an institution and the different levels and layers. And it, you know, it's now accepted cybersecurity is one of those important layers. But he made an interesting point that always stayed with me. He said the problem here is it's going to take a little bit of time for sociology to catch up with the technology. Mm -hmm. So to come back to the point uh, that Martin was talking about with bad guys aren't getting any dumber or thicker. Uh, that's true. Technology is advancing. But society is always a little bit slow in the catch up. So the popular culture is only getting to grips now with a lot of things that have been out there in the form of criminal activity scams. Uh, and most of where I come from, the background I come from, would look at the human factor mm. in security weakness and breaches. And what we're seeing with cyber security is that it's, at the very least, a double-edged sword. And for a long time, when people talked about cyber security, particularly executives, chief executives and companies, and people running state institutions. And we can kind of see how this fits in with the, the recent attack and, and our lack of preparedness for it here in Ireland, <clears throat> is that people talked about it in terms of purely a technical issue and a technical responsibility. And that was the responsibility of the chief technology officer or the chief operating officer, or that's, you know, individuals themselves. I mean, I, I, I'm sure you can think of co-workers uh, who would say, I have a problem here, it's the people in the IT department that will deal with that. Mm -hmm. And so all IT issues, including security, got lumped uh, into somebody else's issue. Ordinary individuals didn't think about uh, cyber or IT security in the same way they would have been conditioned to think about personal security uh, or security responsibilities with sensitive information, if, depending on the kind of role they had. Mm -hmm. So where that became a problem was that uh, the bad guys that Martin mentioned became quite clever as technology improved to protect, to create things like firewalls back in the day when they were actually a useful form of protection. Individuals were targeted because they were the weak point. And it, you know, when you look, come back to it, it's nearly always the human element. And even in the cyber attack on the HSE, as far as I'm aware, they've traced it to a particular computer where somebody had to open an email. So somebody, some human being had to make a decision to let that uh, array of um, uh, technical 
software that did the damage into the building. So it's the same as somebody hearing a knock on the door at 2 a.m. and opening the door to let a burglar in. Why would you do that? No normal person would because they've got the appropriate awareness. Mm. But we still lack as a society cyber situational awareness is what I would refer to it as. In, in, in the military, one of the things that you learn at an early stage was situational awareness about the topography and the terrain you're in. Now we have to apply that thinking to the cyber domain so that we, and, and it, the good news is that I, I'm convinced if we get people aware of that, that we can plug a lot of holes. I think it's fascinating when you describe it like that, you know, just the, the situational awareness. I think that a lot of the, the hackers and the reason why we see the text message scams, for example. So, you know, some scammer purporting to be a delivery company, they're going to deliver your fancy new dress for Saturday night. But you have to click this link right now and you have to give your banking information. The reason those um, those scams happen so often is because they're successful. People want their dress for Saturday night. Yeah. They're going to click on the link and they're buying into that human condition, which is we want and the sense of urgency. Mm. They're very clever. So even people who would think that they are uh, cyber savvy or whatever you want to call it, they can still fall for it because can, these yeah. th these scammers are ever evolving. It's not just the Alberian prince or wherever oh, yeah. he was based, you know, from 10 years ago, wanting to give you a million euro. They're evolving the entire time. So how do we ensure that our awareness keeps a pace with the, the with the hackers or the whoever's behind it well two things first thing you said there uh, we've already been well conditioned to chase the the kind of the the feel-good candy if you like mm. uh, so you know whether you're on facebook or whatever you know the social media platforms are all about click for gratification if you like you know you've, you see you've got a message i don't you know how many people have their facebook or whatever connected directly to their phone and you feel under pressure to respond straight away mm -hmm. so hackers let's just call them that for want of a collective term how, you know are, are quite clever and realize well this is already the the, the playing pitch we're on so now our communications that we use to get in the door, they have to be congruent. So just to use that term. So congruency really uh, has become more sophisticated. The, um, the Nigerian prince, just to, not, to, not to fixate on the poor old Nigerians, but back in the day, you know, who was looking to have his money rest in your account, that's really you know, you know, old hat now. Mm. Uh, people aren't going to be caught out with that. But they will be caught out with other simple things. And just one pertinent example, some years ago, you might remember, there was a local authority uh, in Ireland, uh, where they very nearly transferred a, a large amount of money to somewhere in China. And uh, it was one of the, the county councils. And the, what happened was an administrative member of staff got an email from her boss saying, uh, could you transfer X amount of money to this particular outfit? She, was, uh, she very nearly did it. Actually, I think she did do it, but they were able to uh, stop the, the transfer. Why did she do it? Because the communication was totally congruent uh, to what she would expect from her particular boss. How did that happen? Because somebody had penetrated that local authority's system. They lay in the system, a little bit like a, a, an SAS soldier is trained to sit in the undergrowth and study the topography and the terrain and the movements of people. And they studied the communications, uh, the vernacular and the, the style so that their fake communication followed all of those things. Now, there was, there, there was undoubtedly technical expertise needed, mm. but there was uh, human uh, awareness and psychology expertise being deployed as well. 
And that, that's what makes this so lethal. How do we combat it? It, com it comes back to the thing of training people in, I would call it, congruency testing. So, you know, there's an old saying, if it, if it walks like a duck and waddles like a duck, it is a duck. So how, we have to, we have to uh, rejig and restart people's natural suspicions and to, to, uh, to trigger those things, because for a long time, most of us in the Western world have turned off those things. Yeah, Martin, I might come to you at this point because a lot of uh, companies are, obviously cybersecurity has been in the headlines as we've said there, so everybody has a heightened awareness of it at the moment. But for companies who now may be looking to invest in their cybersecurity infrastructure, is it enough to add a layer of cybersecurity on top of already existing systems? Or do you almost need to go down to the foundation level and ingrain it into the DNA, the practice, the mindset, the function and the focus of the company as a whole to ensure that we catch those instances like Declan mentioned there? Yeah, I think a very, very good place to start is to ask the question, what could possibly go wrong? Um, there's enough stories about cybersecurity incidents and enough, and enough examples out there of, of organizations that have fallen um, for these kind of attacks for people to think, well, OK, if, if I do reflect um, on my own business or my own personal life and start thinking about what could possibly go wrong, you can then start to put in those defenses that are necessary. And you, you can't rely on one single defense. We need to have many different levels of overlapping defenses so that we're maximizing our chances of detecting and blocking an attack. And the sooner that we can detect that attack, the better. Um, because to take Declan's example, um, yeah, if, if a bad guy is putting together a very, very sophisticated attack using your own language and the people that you normally um, talk to, it's going to be quite difficult to detect that. But if we can take that incursion back in time to the point where we've got the bad guy getting on the mail server, downloading the mail, putting together the language for their attack, then we can, we're at a very, very better point of stopping it. And we're more likely to stop harm being incurred. But I think one key point uh, to, to go back a little bit is that we need to accept that people are human. Um, we can tell people um, to be aware of what's out there. And I hope um, events such as this can allow people to maybe just reflect on their own security that they have in their business or in their day-to-day -day life. But for those of us in the, in the security industry, we have to accept that people are human. Human error is part of being human. Um, the bad guys are very, very sophisticated in putting together their social, social engineering attacks to make them look realistic. So I think where we need to start from is to stop as many of these attacks as possible getting in front of people. Um, because not everyone is going to recognize the attack as legitimate all the time. Mm. So we want to stop the attacks coming through so that people aren't seeing them and aren't being tempted to engage. And then if they do engage, we need to detect that very, very early on and stop the attack progressing so that even if you do click the link, uh, you're not taken to that malicious website, or if you are taken to the malicious website, that additional malicious tools 
aren't downloaded. And if you, heaven forbid, do give away your username and password to an attacker, that again, we can detect the malicious use of those stolen credentials through things such as two-factor authentication. So we have the tools in place to do it, but we need many overlapping tools. And we also need to um, yeah, remember, no matter how many times you tell people, don't click the link, don't click the link, the next time that funny cat video comes through from their friend, they're going to click the link. And if they're expecting that parcel that is has been delayed and they get that email saying, oh, we need to reschedule your, your parcel, people will click the link. And, and this is the bad guy's game. And they've, they've turned out to be pretty good at it. You're listening to a panel discussion featuring Declan Power, the security and defence analyst, and Martin Lee of Cisco. When we come back, we are going to find out what exactly these hackers want from you. Tech Talk. Tech Talk. On News Talk. Thanks to Think. From digital signage to audiovisual solutions, we've thought of everything. Visit thinkpm.ie. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Tech Talk at newstalk.com is the email address if you'd like to get in touch. I'm bringing you a panel discussion I hosted on the News Talk Facebook page with thanks to Cisco earlier this week. I was joined by Declan Power, who is a security and defence analyst and Martin Lee from Cisco. We were talking through all things uh, relating to cybersecurity, ransomware, the different kinds of attacks and how they can and do impact your day-to-day life. We're going to jump back into the conversation now and Martin Lee explained what the hackers are looking to get from different types of attacks. Firstly, me as an individual, me as an SME owner, and then aiming towards some of those bigger organisations with deeper pockets and potentially could be willing to pay those hefty ransoms. So the vast majority of attacks are criminal in nature. Um, It's it's part of organised crime. There's a lot of money for the bad guys to extract. I think, I mean, I've said it before and I've said it again, there's no such thing as a new crime. What we are seeing um, are these traditional crime methods being updated for the 21st century. So for an individual, again, if I was a bad guy thinking about how I might target you, it's a matter of thinking, well, how am I best going to get money out from you? So um, attacking you for your bank account details is um, a very, very good way for bad guys put together sophisticated malware, malicious software that could steal your banking details or piggyback on the connection as you connect to your bank online. Um, Certainly getting your usernames and passwords for any financial system that you use, uh, could use that for insurance fraud, um, identity theft, taking out loans in your name, trying to get your friends to to send you in inverted commas, the bad guy pretending to be you because you need the money and you're stuck in a um, in a faraway country and you need and you need funds. Um, those are very much financial oriented um, crimes. The other one, a criminal business model that really has been developed over the past uh, you know, 10, 15 years or so is that of ransomware. So um, I'm sure you have many, many important things on your personal devices. Um, photos of loved ones, important documents, maybe your credentials serve to access 
those systems that are part of your life. And for a bad guy, if you can get malicious software on your laptop and encrypt those files so that you no longer have access to them, our bad guy can then request money from you in order to get those files back. All it is, it's kidnap updated for the 21st century. We're taking away something of value to you um, in the previous uh, you know, non-online world that yes, that might genuinely be a family member, but in the online world, in the cyber world, it's so much more easy to take away the files that are value to you. For attacks against SME businesses, really it's roughly the same kind of, um, of business model. Again, we wanna get the financial information so that the bad guys can conduct um, essentially online mugging or bank theft. Also, the ransomware. The bad guys um, know that your average SME doesn't have uh, millions of euros to pay in ransom, but they will almost certainly know, more or less to the euro, exactly what ransom you might be willing to pay. Um, so again, the bad guys have um, studied their, uh, their victims in great detail and know how to put together some very, very convincing attacks know the right price point um, for your particular uh, weaknesses. And then for larger organizations, again, we have all that again, um, but we also have the notion of targeted attacks where somebody is researching an organization in depth, identifying what are the weak points of how they might get into that organization, and that might be through um, a, a targeting an individual. It also might be through technical weaknesses um, that are exposed on the, um, on the internet, so they can get inside that organization. Once they're inside, they'll spread out across the network, um, jumping from system to system, and what they're looking for are the crown jewels. What are those key systems that an organization can't do without? because if you hit those with ransomware, you can bring an entire business um, or an entity in the public sector to a halt. And then you can ask for a ransom of a different magnitude than you might be, um, you know, if you hit my laptop and maybe you got the picture, you know, the pictures of my children as a baby or, um, you know, my, my lunch dates that I only have here, you know, you might be able to hit me for a couple of hundred euros or hit a member of the public for a couple of hundred euros for that. But if you're bringing an entire company to a halt, you can ask an awful lot more. Yeah, and we're going to explore uh, what that awful lot more is and also what happens when countries are targeted and different parts of uh, different government bodies are targeted in just a quick second. And a quick reminder for those of you just joining us, we are talking through all things cybersecurity with thanks to Cisco protecting what's now and what's next. We have Martin Lead, uh, who is the technical lead of security research at Cisco and Declan Power, uh, security and defense analyst. And Declan, I want to come to you picking up on what Martin was talking about there. So when you target the, 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 the people and the organizations with lots of money, there's a lot at stake. We saw the HSC attack, the ransomware attack, um, exactly a month ago uh, this week. Uh, and the impact that had, it brought the health service to its knees because elements of the health service had embraced technology. If you look at maternity care here in Ireland, they had embraced uh, e-health records, which is a fantastic innovation, 
But however, as a result of that, uh, they were completely brought to a standstill as a result of the cyber attack. So when hackers target health services or any element of uh, that type of infrastructure that is vital to the running of a country, what's at stake and is this going to become the norm is this all now just part of a political game of chess uh, that you know one company can bring another company to its knees with a few lines of code i i don't think that's quite the the the, the way the uh, situation the way that landscape is evolving and they, they become a part of corporate one-upmanship uh, probably because they would have greater things to lose in terms of reputation and in terms of, uh, of simply being able to be brought before the courts. Mm -hmm. You know, if one company was to do that to another in Ireland or in the UK or within the European sphere, you know, there would be consequences, legal consequences. Whereas, you know, what we've seen with the, the hack on the HSE, we know that it came from Russia. Uh, you know, and if it, even if it was possible to prove that uh, fully and uh, seek extradition, that's not going to happen. So there'll be no legal consequences. So <clears throat> one of the things that we have to realise is that there is a very blurred junction point between this being a justice issue or a defence issue. So we need to have a more joint approach with the services who carry out those tasks. So law enforcement, military, the thinkers behind that coming together to conceive appropriate strategies. You heard a lot of people in Ireland talking about, well, the Garda Cyber Bureau are, uh, were, were, were on top of this and dealing with this. <clears throat> but really, and they themselves would admit this, they're configured to be able to gather evidence where there has been some sort of a cyber crime, where they have full access to that. Uh, this was way beyond their purview. And so we, we, we now also need, if we're going to have a joint approach between justice and defence entities, we need to be doing that on an international level. So like-minded nations, the Western European nations, Western nations, uh, need to be banded together to create a form, forms of cyber alliance in terms of sharing knowledge and sharing uh, defence systems. And to amplify a point that uh, Martin was talking about too, uh, that relates to the HSE, as I uh, uh, understand it, technically speaking, the HSE was reasonably uh, uh, easy to penetrate because their defence was more or less defence in breadth. Their, their, their technical defence uh, was like one series of barricades. For students of military history, it was a bit like the Maginot Line that France built between Germany and themselves after the First World War to prevent a Second World War. And they put all their efforts in defence into that. And what did the Germans do? They invaded the Low Countries and came around behind. And they literally took the whole of France, and then they dealt from behind with the Maginot Line. And in a way, that's, that's what's happened with certain corporate entities that have invested all their defences, their, their technical defences, in that style of defence. So defence in depth, a concept of that is what's needed. And I think Martin was, was talking about that, that you need these layers. Uh, they need to have, there needs to be a human factor in terms of training and awareness, as well as technical factors. And that's something that I think is quite lacking mm -hmm. in a lot of Irish institutions, uh, particularly state institutions. Uh, and we're probably not the only ones. So uh, moving forward, we need to be aware that now that there are a number of layers there is the national security element to cybersecurity. There is the institutional and corporate layer, and then there would be the individual layer. So when Martin was talking about the individuals who would be scammed for a few hundred euro, a few hundred pounds or whatever else, that, that's, that's one element that we're, most people probably were aware of to some extent. 
uh, we're more aware of the corporate entity. But now I think it's safe to say there's a blurred line between national security and corporate security because it can be in a state, a, a, a rogue state's interests to use these uh, hacking groups to perform uh, penetrations that they will make some money out of, but that that state will gain out of because of the chaos that would be created. And we need to think more clearly and develop strategic thinking, combined strategic thinking. It's a little bit like the concept, again, if I can use a historical analogy, the time of, of, of war between uh, England, Spain and France and piracy. And the, uh, all of the, the great nations, but uh, England uh, were very good at commissioning what they called privateers. They were pirates who were given a, a roving commission from the, the, the king or queen to go ahead with your piracy because it's interrupting uh, French commerce or Spanish commerce. And the Spanish and French did the same. So in a way, what we're seeing are organized states you know, developing this relationship where these hackers are privateers. So they're doing it both for their own gain and they're doing it uh, maybe at times in the interests of a particular state. And that's, that's going to take a bit of thinking to combat. It's interesting. I've done quite a bit of reading about this in the last little while. And one thing that has struck me, Martin, is that we have the professional cyber gangs who are as hot as you like. They know what they're doing. They know how to play every step of the game in terms of a ransomware attack. But then there's also an increase in the average Joe hacker at home. Like it could be a teenager in their bedroom. It could be anybody anywhere in the world like deploying essentially what is a software as a service platform uh, for ransomware attacks. And that's terrifying because they aren't as sophisticated in terms of the negotiation. Perhaps they don't have the same ethics, if you'll allow me to use that word in this context, uh, when it comes to negotiating, whether they, there are sensitive, um, I suppose, implications of targeting certain individuals or certain companies. That is a scary thing to have that SAS approach to, to ransomware attacks. There is a thriving underground economy of services, professionals, tools, yes, um, uh, ransomware as a service, all sorts of things and, and various uh, forums where they, that are out there that you can, you can join. And um, yes, you, often the barriers for um, uh, entry into becoming a cyber criminal are, are relatively low. However, um, those tools that are widely distributed are the ones that organizations such as my own are gonna come across very, very early on. We know the signs, we know what it looks for, what it looks like. And so actually, if you're using these entry level tools, chances are you are going to be detected very, very quickly indeed. Um, we do work uh, together with uh, law enforcement across the, uh, across the globe. We're happy to share um, the intelligence that we have on attacks. And I think one of the key things in managing cybersecurity is getting across that feeling that if you indulge in this, you're going to be found, you know, you're going to be found and you're going to be held to account for your um, for your actions from a legal point of view. Um, the the areas that tend to be slightly more complicated, I mean, if we can think about that, there's layers of, of sophistication of, um, of threat actors. And we've got those very, very low, low levels that are using um, off the shelf tools or stuff that they've um, that they've bought over the Internet. That's fairly low sophistication. 
certainly from my point of view, there's not a lot of sport here to, to, to stop. If you've got the defenses in place, if you've got um, antivirus on all, you've, all of your devices, this, this isn't going to be that much of a problem. As we go up the scale, we get increases in sophistication and increases in the resources available to the gangs. So yeah, those, those top level um, cyber criminals who are, I mean, let's face it, they are earning millions of, of dollars. Uh, a few years ago, we were able to, to take down one particular ransomware uh, gang, and they were bringing in, in the region of $50 million a year from, um, from ransoms. That's a lot of money that can be reinvested in software engineering to build better and more sophisticated tools, and also to build infrastructures that are less resistant to, to being taken down. And these indeed are, are the types of gangs, as Declan refers to, as privateers that maybe are operating with uh, the, the nod and the wink, or at least some degree of tolerance from the nation state. And then beyond that, we also have um, nation state resources. Um, these attacks tend to be really relatively rare um, and associated with geopolitical uh, politics, where we have one nation state uh, seeking to conduct espionage on another. And again, in the 21st century, if you want to be a spy, you don't be like James Bond and shin up a drain pipe to steal the secrets. No, you hack into the you hack into the system, and some of these attacks tend to be the most sophisticated because they have the whole resources of a nation state behind them. But but there is this spectrum of capability. Um, not everyone is exposed to all of um, uh, of these risks and threats, and typically it goes back to being able to answer that question. What could possibly go wrong? What could go wrong for your organization and in your life? And then how do we respond appropriately to that? What protection do we put in place that's adequate for the threats that we, um, that we have faced? And, and the example I, I frequently use, uh, my plumber, he's a small businessman. Of course, he needs to know about cybersecurity and needs to have some protection in place. But the level of protection he needs is very, very different from that from the um, chief executive of a defense contractor, uh, which would be exposed to a whole new range of threats. And, and the trick is, is just remembering or reflecting on what kind of threats am I likely to be faced and what do I need to put in place in order to, um, to protect myself from that. That was Martin Lee of Cisco and Declan Power, the security and defence analyst, speaking to me on News Talk's Facebook Live on Thursday of this week. It was a fascinating discussion. If you missed it or if you want to hear even more, uh, you can find the podcast. It's up in full on the News Talk app. Just search for Tech Talk and you will see the cybersecurity special there. Uh, and that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of this show at all, you can listen back in full as I mentioned on the News Talk app, just search for Tech Talk. John Fardy's up next here on News Talk. I'll chat to you next week.